This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, Senator Rick Scott, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, Senator Catherine Cortez Mastow, and Senator Amy Klobuchar, top political leaders from four battleground states, join us in the final hours of the 2020 election cycle. Let's listen. Welcome to the Washington Post Live Election Daily Show. I'm Bob Costa, and it's all in voters' hands, in your hands. Everybody's watching the battlegrounds, and today we have top leaders from four of those states, Pennsylvania, Florida, Minnesota, and Nevada. Over the next hour, we will hear from Florida Senator Rick Scott, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, former presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar, also a senator from Minnesota, and Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who, if you're a political junkie, you know she's head of the DSCC, the Democrats' Senate campaign operation. But first, today's top stories, Election Day. Vice President Biden went to Catholic Church in the morning in Delaware. It tells you a lot about where this election is. Catholic voters are going to matter in places like northeastern Pennsylvania, where Vice President Biden also went to make a campaign stop in his hometown. Catholic voters union voters, Biden, Bob Casey-style Democrats, who was with VP Biden today, if they don't turn out for Biden in northeastern Pennsylvania and western and central Pennsylvania, you could see a narrow path to victory for President Trump. But if they turn out, along with traditional Democratic voters in urban areas, could be a big win for Biden. Number two, all eyes on Georgia. We've been talking a lot about the Deep South. Can the Democrats make gains in the South Carolina Senate race and the two Georgia Senate races? But Georgia's, my Democratic sources say, probably the best play for the Democrats. You got two Senate races, got the whole electorate engaged. You have a changing demographic uh, outlook in the city of Atlanta and the suburbs. More Latinos moving in, Asian Americans, white liberals coming in. It's not just the traditional uh, black voter and the Democrat and the white Republican voter. That's a changing state. It would be big for Democrats to make gains. And Georgia would say a lot about where that party could go throughout the South in the coming years. And number three, President Trump's grievances. You may have heard him on Fox and Friends this morning. When he closed out 2016, I was there covering it. It was all about the grievances of the worker and economic populist message, Steve Bannon at his side. Now it's much more about the president's own grievances. Is it enough to connect with the restless American to be determined later today? Number four, election litigation, it looms. Regardless of what we see tonight in early returns, we may not have a clear winner. The Washington Post is going to be careful. It's going to be cautious. And there could be contested ballots. And we're still going to wait to have to see what some ballots say in states like Pennsylvania that have allowed more days for votes to be counted. So that's what I'm watching in my notebook today. But let's turn to one of the leaders in the key states tonight, Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. He was the governor of two terms, knows the state very well. Um, My sources in Florida say he might even think about running for president in 2024. Senator Scott, good to have you here. Sad to be here. Everybody, Bob, you're right. Everybody needs to get their vote out. You know, I've had three close statewide elections, and what you worry about every day is, are your voters going to show up? And so 
Joe Biden, Donald Trump, that's what they've got to do. Their campaigns have to get the votes out. The West Coast of Florida. A lot of Midwesterners have moved down there uh, for the winter or maybe even full-time, full-time residents of Florida. What are you looking for, Senator, on the West Coast of Florida that could tell us a lot about where the rest of the country, the Midwest, is going to turn in this election? Well, historically, you know, the, the panhandle of our state does it goes really well for Republicans. And so I, I can't imagine it's not going to go uh, big for Donald Trump uh, this time. I think he's also going to do really well with Hispanics. I've been able to win the Hispanic vote in all three of my races. I think Donald Trump is going to do well. I was at his rally Sunday night, Monday morning. Uh, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Hispanics there uh, supporting the president. So you're right, the panhandle is going to be important. The Hispanic vote is going to be important. But the big thing is, just get your vote out. Make sure that everybody you think is going to vote for your candidate, make sure they get out and vote. What are you worried about, though, for President Trump's chances in Florida? It's all about votes. I mean, it's it's all about, you know, is is the uh, you know, there's a lot there are a lot of people that haven't voted uh, by mail in. There's a lot of people that haven't voted early. Uh, we have three options here. You can do mail in. You can go vote early or you can vote Election Day. So um, whoever's going to win today, it's going to be tied to how big their turnout is is today. I think it's, you know, historically, Florida's 50 50. Uh, my races, I haven't won by a landslide. It's just it's a 50 50 state. It's hard to win. You've got to work on. Uh, getting your message out. I think Donald Trump's message is resonating better. Uh, this this state cares about jobs. Uh, this state does not want higher taxes. Joe Biden uh, is interested in higher taxes, much higher taxes. And we know that Donald Trump's better on the economy. The other issue down here is socialism. We have a lot of people that have left Venezuela, left Cuba, left Nicaragua and come here. And, you know, Joe Biden's appeasement of, uh, of these dictators is not going to help him. And and it's come out that he wants to have a negotiation well, with Senator, Nicholas Maduro Senator, in Venezuela. How has he appeased dictators? Specify what you're you're saying. Sure. He, absolutely. When he was uh, vice president with uh, Barack Obama, uh, they they tried to change the relations with the Castro regime. It didn't do anything to stop the atrocities against the Cuban population. He's never stood up against Maduro in Venezuela. He's never stood up against um, Ortega. He doesn't even talk about it. And now he's come out and says he wants to have a conversation, uh, negotiation with Maduro and Venezuela and just completely abandon uh, the interim president that was elected by the National Assembly, uh, Juan Guaido. I mean, that is clear appeasement. And it, it doesn't work. It's never worked. I can give you the story. After the Obama-Biden appeasement of uh, the Castro regime, a lady I know, her hand was chopped off uh, because I mean, her, her atrocity was she complained that a school in her district was getting closed. And the, uh, the Cuban regime chopped her hand off, stuck in the mud so she would die. She fortunately didn't, was able to come to Florida and, and live a life of freedom. So we've, we've seen, Senator, the Republican National Convention, a lot of speakers from Florida referencing some of the issues you just referenced. But one issue you did not mention, Senator Scott, is the pandemic. I've seen the Biden golf cart parades in the villages. Are seniors starting to turn on President Trump because of his handling of the pandemic, particularly in your state? Well, we clearly haven't, you know, we haven't, uh, we're not out of the woods yet. We still need to, um, people need to wear their masks. They need to social distance. We're, we've made a lot of progress on the therapeutics. Hopefully we're making progress on the vaccine. Uh, but we've, we still have a lot of work to do. But I think when you talk to seniors, what they're worried about is they know with a bad economy, it's very difficult to fund the programs that they care about. It's hard to fund a program like Social Security and Medicare if we have a bad economy. So if Joe Biden gets elected and he has this big tax increase, it's not going to help 
make sure we can continue those programs, which are really important to me and really important to the seniors in my state. What part of Florida uh, are Democrats making the most gains in? Well, I think I think the you know from the Democrat standpoint, historically Broward County, uh, Palm Beach County, uh, I think where they have historically done uh, well is Miami Dade. They're not going to do as well this time uh, because the Hispanics are going to show up. I think significantly for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I think it's important that you reach out to the uh, Puerto Rican community, which is in the Orlando area. Uh, I put a lot of effort into helping Puerto Ricans uh, in my state get jobs, and then after the hurricane, make sure we open up relief centers. So I think it's important that that uh, the president reaches out to uh, the Puerto Rican community to make sure that he gets their vote, to make sure they know what he tried to do to you know to return Puerto Rico uh, to you know success success like they've had in the past. For the suburban voter in that Orlando area, the I four corridor, how much does character matter in President Trump's conduct? Oh, I think I think I think character always matters. I, I you know I always thought about these races. It comes down to do people think you care about them? Uh, do they, you know, do they trust you that you're you're competent and you're going to worry about uh, their needs? So I think I think character is important. I, I think it's I think it's important for both you know Joe Biden and for President Trump. Uh, as we know, Joe Biden has never been able to respond to the accusations about Hunter Biden and why and what he knew about Hunter Biden's activities. So I think that's probably also going to impact um, uh, voters in the state. How would it impact? Vice President Biden has responded, but what do you mean in terms of impact? No, he's never he's never responded. He's never responded to what did he know? You know what did he know about what Hunter Biden was doing in in the Ukraine, getting paid eighty thousand dollars plus a month, and why did Joe Biden go and get a prosecutor uh, fired that was investigating that company? He's never responded to that. He's never responded to to uh, Hunter Biden's emails with regard to what was going on in China. He's just said no. It's, it's not. It's not relevant. It, it is relevant. It's relevant for every candidate. Corruption is very important to people in our state, and they want to know the facts. And and you know, Joe Biden and the media have tried to hide the facts about what happened uh, with Hunter Biden, and just put the facts out. Whatever they are, they are. Well, the media, the Washington Post, has pursued the hard drive. It has not been shared with the Washington Post. We're trying to get that hard drive. We've been trying to obtain it for weeks. In terms of the Senate investigation, Senator uh, Scott. Do you support Senator Johnson and his efforts to investigate Hunter Biden and the Biden family? Here's what I, I'm on that committee, and I voted to, you know, to, you know, to bring the tech companies in, voted to, uh, to get more information about what happened to Hunter, what, what Hunter Biden was doing, and what did Joe Biden know about it. I think it's important for the public to know. I don't know exactly what the facts are going to show, but I think it's important if somebody's running for president or was a sitting vice president. We should know what happened in Ukraine, what, you know, how was Joe Biden, what knowledge did he have of what Hunter Biden was doing in China? We should know those things. How do you want Attorney General Bill Barr to handle this? Well, I mean, I think, I think he ought to do a normal, you know, whatever. He should treat all candidates the same. He should do a normal investigation. If there's accusations that, that you know, there where it sure appears something it doesn't make sense. You know, look into it and and put the facts out so we all know. What I we don't know enough information about exactly what Joe Biden knew when he knew it. I mean, I mean let's get the facts out there. That's that's what makes sense. If he wins the White House, Senator Scott, 
Are you prepared to work with a president-elect Biden, a President Biden, on various issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whoever wins, whoever wins the presidency, I will work with them. I want to. I I am very focused on how do we help the people of Florida. We want the. I want the people of my state to get jobs, get a good education, have live in a safe community. I, these things are really important to me. I think it's important that we have we promote liberty, freedom, democracy in Latin America. I think it's important that we hold China accountable. So whoever wins this, whoever wins tonight, I'm going to do work hard to work with them to deal with those issues. Let's come back to Florida. Seniors in Florida, you've heard the chants, fire Fauci, fire Fauci at the president's closing rallies. Is that a chant you would agree with? I have, I've, I've had a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. I know he cares about the American public. I know he, you know, he is, his goal is to, uh, to make sure we, uh, you know, we all survive this pandemic. I know we have a lot of work to do. Uh, so, well, I've had a good relationship with him. I do wish that we had more testing uh, out there. I do wish uh, that we had more information. Now, a lot of that information comes out of the states, you know, the state health departments and things like that. But I think we ought to have more knowledge so we can all make in, informed decisions. When I was governor, I had hurricanes, I had a healthcare crisis. I was inundate people with information because they'll make good decisions. And so that's that's my expect, expectation. But I've had a very good working relationship with Dr. Fauci. And would you support him staying on in his role? It, it sure is, as long as he's doing his job. But here's what I don't believe. I don't believe we are shutting down this economy. I think it's incumbent upon each of us to wear a mask. It's incumbent upon each of us to social distance. And it's, it's our responsibility to quarantine. I, do, I believe we've got to get this economy open so people can get back to a normal life. We know we have, we have to fight the coronavirus virus and we've got to do it logically. We do have, we're doing better with therapeutics. I'm optimistic on the vaccine, uh, but we cannot close down this economy. Should President Trump do more to wear a mask or to even think about having some kind of uh, program or campaign about wearing a face covering? Well, look, I, I've talked to the president. I know he I know he cares about um, everybody's safety. Um, uh, I, you know, so, it's in, it, the reality is today, who does not know that you should wear a mask or social distance? Now, some people are, don't take things seriously, but they should. They worry about for their family, their friends, their coworkers, all these things. I'm disappointed uh, when people don't wear masks and they, they don't social distance. I think every one of us, uh, to U.S. senators, to governors, we all ought to have the same message. But, I do not want to shut down this economy. I do not want the government to tell, be telling uh, the public how to lead their lives. I think we should inform them and do everything we can to get them to lead a safe life. And, that, and But I want to get this economy going again. Final question, Senator Scott. You've run gubernatorial campaigns in one in Florida, two of them. You've run uh, a Senate campaign in one. You're a data man. You've come out of the business world. What is your prediction for the final margin in Florida tonight? I should have went by a little bit bigger last time. If you, if you look at, if, what I understand is there's a lot more uh, people that normally show up uh, to vote in, in, in a presidential race that haven't voted yet on their Democrats. If they do, uh, just from a data standpoint, it looks like a good win. But again, if, you know, it's all about the going. And, and let me tell you the other thing. I have not seen the grassroots efforts on the Democrat side 
that I've seen on the Republican side this time. For whatever reason, the Democrats have decided not to do the door knocking, which I I did. I, I had a big grassroots program in my races, and the same person is doing it for Donald Trump this time. Republicans have a good grassroots effort. It doesn't appear the Democrats in Florida. Well, that's because of a pandemic. Well, whether whether there's a pandemic or not, you can safely talk to people. Uh, you can wear masks. You can social distance. But if you want to win, if you want to win a race, you're going to have to go out and talk to people. And then, if they have a question about an issue, you have the ability to talk to them in person and explain it. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Have a good day. Bye bye. And I'd like now to turn to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, my home state, the biggest battleground perhaps of them all today, uh, maybe even ahead of Florida. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking ad nauseum about Pennsylvania, not that I mind, love Pennsylvania. Uh, you are on the front lines as Lieutenant Governor, one of the <clears throat> key Democrats in the state. Is that Democratic base in Philadelphia in northeastern Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania, the, the union worker, the working Democrat going to come out for Biden? Yes or no? I, I do. Absolutely. Are, are the Democratic base all throughout Pennsylvania is going to come out. Uh, I suspect in record high turnout, too, for, for what that's worth. But you also must confront the reality that the, the president is popular in Pennsylvania. I've been consistently saying that. Pennsylvania should be treated as if it's a margin play. And I've always maintained that. And the president has demonstrated that he certainly has a level of residual and durable support in Pennsylvania. That being said, the Democratic base is fired up. And I expect, as I said, a record turnout uh, from all quarters across Pennsylvania for Democrats. The way I've been looking at the map as a reporter is that the pre president could have strong turnout in Western and Central Pennsylvania, white voters in those areas. But if he sees an erosion in the Philadelphia suburbs, it could be game over for him. And that makes Luzerne County, Scranton, and Wilkes-Barre in the Northeast kind of the final battleground within the big battleground of Pennsylvania. Do you think that white vote in Western Pennsylvania and Central Pennsylvania will be at 2016 levels for President Trump? Well, I, I think it's, it's actually, to be more specific, it's the smaller rural counties vote, not just where the geography is. They tend to move in, in unison. And that's the way Donald Trump won in 2016. He manufactured unprecedented margins in these small rural counties. No one would necessarily fight over Potter County, for example, in our state. But if you stack Potter County's margins on top of 55 to 60 other counties, it's an enormous number of votes. And the, the president has taken extreme measures to barnstorm and energize those bases. So. I don't know how you quite accurately would poll for that. Second of all, there is an, a, an explicit move to energize those voters that would not be otherwise engaged in the political conversation, may not even been engaged in 2016 by voting for the president in getting them out. If you are able to blunt those margins in Pennsylvania, if you are able to do that in key parts like NEPA, to your, to your point, you cut off the oxygen for any Republican, no matter who it is, running statewide in Pennsylvania. And thankfully, uh, well, my, my first campaign manager is now managing uh, the vice president in Pennsylvania. And I was emphatic that you must get the vice president to these smaller counties like Cambria, like Erie, like Bucks, 
like Luzerne. And the vice president has done just that. The mandate is not to flip one county from red to blue. It's to cut into those margins Trump produced. And if you do that alone, regardless of more Democratic turnout, you will win and prevail in Pennsylvania. You know Democratic politics in Pennsylvania. I've heard as a reporter for years this vaunted Democratic machine, they call it, in the city of Philadelphia. But it disappointed Democrats in 2016. Are you confident that four years later that machine, shall we say, still exists and is actually going to power out a Democratic vote in Philly? I don't think the Democratic machine was ever relevant, to be honest with you. But what is relevant in Philadelphia is this enormous grassroots energy. I mean, it's it's palpable. The, the, this idea that you, you would need that kind of that machine uh, is, is just not true. On the ground in Philadelphia, the energy is, is robust and engaged. And you have people willing to stand in long lines. You have people willing to make sure that they bank their votes. And I am not the least bit concerned that Philadelphia is going to be engaged in terms of voter turnout and making sure that they do their part to deliver Pennsylvania for the vice president. You've been dragged into this race with Governor Wolf. President Trump's attacked the Wolf administration about its mm -hmm. handling of the pandemic. How do you see your own role, the governor's role, as a factor in the final days of this race in Pennsylvania? I mean, the, our role is, is what it's always been. Just because somebody's lying, it, you know, no matter how big their platform or microphone is, doesn't change that fact. You, you can say whatever you want, but it's not true. And it's, it's just not, it's not a great look. You know, it's not very alpha male to complain about cheating and make all these baseless allegations that just aren't true. You know, strap it up and, and, and hit us square on. That's what, that's what be, would be my advice. Stop lying and start engaging and let's just find out where Pennsylvania stands. It's not that hard. So some people watching and joining us today may not be fully aware of the Supreme Court situation in Pennsylvania. In brief, as Pennsylvania waits for some ballots to be counted, what's on your mind? What are you looking for? What are you working on? I mean, it's, it really is gonna come down. It's not even gonna come down. If, if that court decision to allowing those ballots that are postmarked by election day, but are received by February, or excuse me, February, Friday, uh, is, is allowed to proceed, that I think would overall benefit Democrats in terms of votes. But let's be honest, if it ends in the Supreme Court, it's not going to be any an argument coming from our side that's going to carry the day. It's going to be the conscience of a single Supreme Court jurist, whether his or her uh, belief that the democracy, the American democracy is more important than, than a political kind of case, because there's no you know, real basic legal argument at this point. But four justices have already confirmed a willingness to entertain that at a later date. And now you have Judge B Justice Barrett in there. So I think that's what it comes down to is that, you know, whose conscience is going to step up and say, I'm going to stand on the side of the American Republic, uh, country over party, or I'm going to side with an individual who uh, may not like the result and is going to push a litigious agenda that really has no underlying validity in the law or precedent. This is a little bit nitty gritty, but I've been talking to my sources in Pennsylvania, and they say that the, the Democrats' big fear is that they've encouraged mail-in voting 
in Pennsylvania, but some of, there could be some mistakes, some mess ups. And people say Fetterman, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman's had it on his radar. And you've been telling people to put their ballots in a drop box, not to drop it in a mailbox. What do you mean by that? I mean that um, it's it's undisputed that the, the president sought to sabotage the Postal Service to slow things down. And there was a period of time where that would have been fine. I mean, these are all local deliveries. If I'm a voter in Philadelphia, my ballot is going to go from Philadelphia to another address in Philadelphia, for example. But my position has always consistently been bank it in a Dropbox. They have made it so convenient in these bigger counties where the density is very high that, you know, Philadelphia had 24-7 uh, drop-off uh, locations. So you, no matter what time of the day, you could do it. And you want to bank them. And one of the, the agenda, part of the agenda of the Republican uh, misinformation campaign was to foment chaos and doubt in the mind of a Democratic voter in possession of a mail-in ballot saying, oh my, I don't trust, I don't trust this, where there's no underlying justification for that, of course. So I want to vote in person. And then that's going to needlessly jam up a line. I mean, why trade one ballot for another? They're all, they're both going to count. Um, and if you don't bring everything to, you know, there, you're not allowed to vote with exception of a provisional ballot. And those are exceptions. I mean, those are very rare. Um, and that would, again, create longer lines and, and uh, longer uh, delays. And that's, it's all part of that misinformation campaign. And that's why I've been pushing against that from the get-go, because it's not even subtle. It's, it's bones on the mask, you know, plan A, B, and C for the Republicans at this point. Do you agree? Uh, maybe let me ask this a different way. Uh, the Biden position on fracking, could that have been handled in a better way or not? No. The, 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 the more left-leaning members of our party during the primary tried to define uh, Joe Biden and make his position an outlier or uh, unreasonable. Uh, and they couldn't do that. They couldn't define the vice president. The Republicans can, can't and couldn't redefine Joe Biden. Uh, and the fact that they tried to was, it was amateur, quite frankly. You know, this man's been in public life for almost 50 years. Love him or not. You know, he is who he is, and you're not going to redefine him to the American public. And that's been obvious in terms of, of how he's done this race. You know, fracking could have been a, a significant issue. And I was on record saying this back in January before the pandemic and before the George Floyd uprisings and all these other issues. But I can tell you right now, there is no mythical colony of the Pennsylvania voter where fracking is suddenly that activation issue that would otherwise engage a Pennsylvania voter or have them make up his or her mind. You know, if you are intensely involved in that particular issue, you've already made up your mind a long time ago. And most people, to the exclusion of virtually almost every other issue, see this election as a referendum on chaos. Did you like the last four years? Do you want a different change? Do you want to reboot? And if you, depending on where you are, that's how you're going to vote. I don't think it's going to be a Let's rally around our, our kitchen table and talk about the pros and cons of, of fracking at this point. It's like, you know what we have in the president, and this is the potential new direction with Vice President Biden. Have you detected a, a real swing of suburban women around Pittsburgh, around Philadelphia because of the pandemic and the president's handling of it? Or is that being overstated by some of my sources on the ground in Pennsylvania? No, I mean, you, you, you definitely notice that, that 
it's it's there's a different level of of energy and and it doesn't matter whether it's enthusiasm for the candidate himself or it's just revulsion for the president and his conduct and his policies and and the current situation with without a doubt i mean you are going to have i suspect record high turnout here in in pennsylvania and and it's really a, a referendum so there's no doubt the president has turned off uh, plenty of people that may have been otherwise inclined to just say hey let's go with an economy that seems to be working hey let's not disregard more than a quarter of a million deaths of our fellow citizens and i mean so forth i mean it 2020 is so surreal i mean like you lose track of how surreal it is and you know if you're if you are at this point ride or die with the president you know why i don't understand that it's undeniable to to say that that also does exist that mentality does exist and if he's able to uh, juice up those margins in these small counties and activate those uh, dormant voters, I mean, it's going to be a race. And I tell people, don't take my word for it. You know, ask yourself, where has both campaigns literally lived the last, you know, week to 10 days of this uh, campaign? In fact, last night, he was in, the vice president was in Pittsburgh. Um, uh, so th this very idea that Pennsylvania is critical um, I, I think can't be refuted. Whether or not that's ultimately what happens uh, is anyone's guess. There could be a surprise in Georgia right. or Texas. So. We only have you for a minute or so, Lieutenant Governor, but I have to ask, as a Pennsylvanian, a political reporter, are you going to run for U.S. Senate in 2022? Senator Toomey's retiring. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't made up my path on, on which track. Where are you I, leaning? I are you leaning toward it? I don't have I don't have a lead uh, other than to get through this election because the, these are are hairy, weird, what strange things that we're living in, and uh, my own political future or whatever is honestly the the least of my concern right now, quite frankly. Um, what about but, uh, governor in twenty twenty two? Again, both both of those lanes, uh, you know, are are you know would be under evaluation. I suspect. Do you feel like the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania? has changed since the Rendell years? And, and how has the Wolf-Fetterman administration changed the dynamic in that party in the state? I, I think Governor Wolf has demonstrated himself to be a man of exceptional character, insight, leadership, and, and steel, too. I mean, he guided our state uh, through the pandemic and, and minimized deaths and maximized uh, our opportunity to recover and bounce back uh, throughout all of this. And, I can only be grateful to be a, a part of his team. We're, we're trying to take the party in new directions and are constantly hamstrung by a gerrymandered legislature that seems hell-bent on making some of the most destructive backwards decisions with respects to minimum wage, a women's right to, to choose, uh, marijuana legalization, all these things that are unambiguously net positives for our state. But my hope is, is that we are able to flip the legislature, at least our House, and maybe even the Senate. And then you can really see what, what the governor can do uh, when he's got a legislature that's constantly not trying to you know, throw a wrench uh, in, in just basic progress here in the Commonwealth. Those state legislatures, such a big story, usually huge, too much under huge. the radar. Huge yeah, story, especially in a census year. Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, we're going to have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time. And I hope if you do make a decision on 22, you'll make a, give the Post the scoop rather than the Inquirer. We'll hope for that. So. Well, you have to swear your allegiance to Sheets and Steelers for me to consider those conversations further. I, but I, I'm a Wawa guy. I grew up in Boston. I know. And that's what I'm saying. Like, how, bad, how bad would you want that? that that's, you know, 
you know, uh, Tapper tried to go go all in Eagles, and we saw how that went for him when you uh, go against the, the... But anyway, thank you for having me on. Thanks, Lieutenant Governor. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. And now with uh, many Senate seats up for grabs tonight, Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, she is the one leading the Democratic Party's efforts to take back the Senate majority. She's the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCC, this cycle. Senator Cortez Masto, thanks so much for being here. Bob, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Senator, what are you hearing right now from your sources around the country about these Senate races? Could you give us a, a, a little hint about some anecdotal stories you're hearing about a key race? Well, let, let me just say uh, about the races that we're watching and seeing, we are on offense, right? We have expanded the map. Uh, and we have incredible candidates, fantastic candidates who have put us in a great position today on election day. Um, we have the ability, because of the strong um, competitive races that are going in and, and really some tough states, we have multiple pathways to the Senate. And that's a good position to be in, Bob. And I, I will tell you, uh, a year ago uh, when I took this job and we were looking at the map, um, and looking at how we could go on offense. We really, were, at that time, really had two states we were looking at. Those two states that Trump lost were Colorado and Maine. And then being somebody from Nevada, I was also looking at Arizona because I had known Pearson Cinema had won there. And so we were really looking at those states. But now, fast forward to where we are today. Because of some just great candidates, strong team, a lot of energy out there, we actually have put in play what, over a dozen Republican-held Senate seats are in play for us right now. And so that's what we're looking at, but we're not going to take anything for granted. I will tell you. But is it fair uh, to say, Senator Colorado, you feel confident about? Yeah, Colorado is strong for us. Yes, Hickenlooper, Governor Hickenlooper has done an incredible job there. The polls, he's always been in a strong position for there, and that's a good, strong state for us. Uh, and, and I will say, you know, and I just got off the phone with Teresa Greenfield, and she has worked hard in Iowa. I mean, she has been out, she's been all over that state, um, you know, really in a safe manner, social distancing, but talking to her voters about issues that are important to them. And and Bob, you know, the issues are healthcare still. It is healthcare. Even before the pandemic, it was healthcare. And now that is still the number one issue. People want to make sure that they're protected and they have access to healthcare and coverage for pre-existing condition and somebody that's going to advocate and fight for them about how we get out of this pandemic, this healthcare crisis that we're in right now. Senator, you brought up the Iowa Senate race. Why has that race tightened in the last week with Senator Ernst uh, now uh, doing much better than she was months ago in the latest Des Moines Register poll? Well, first of all, let me, let's put this in perspective. We are we have expanded the map in a number of really tough states. These are tough states. They're going to be competitive, and we knew that going in. Iowa is one of them that's going to be competitive. But what we see is a, a candidate like Teresa Greenfield, who who really comes from her state. He, she knows the issue. She grew up in that state. She grew up on a farm, so she knows how to get out and talk to constituents about the issues that matter to them, including Social Security and healthcare, because she relied on it. But we also saw her strong debate performance, right? And, and so she has spent time talking to the voters and about and listening and, and letting them know she was going to be their advocate in Washington on all the issues that matter to them. And it, and it's still, that's true across the country in all of our competitive races. It's the kitchen table issues at the end of the day that voters are really paying attention to. And as you can imagine, and I just said it because I see this in Nevada, even before the pandemic, 
access to healthcare was the number one issue. Now with a healthcare crisis in this country because of coronavirus, it, it just magnifies the need for people to have healthcare in this country. And they have watched when, uh, and I have watched in, in the Senate as uh, Republican leadership and Mitch McConnell have voted 70 times to take away the Affordable Care Act, have done nothing to actually put forward another relief package, a stimulus package for comprehensive relief to address the coronavirus. And this president is in federal court right now trying to do away with the Affordable Care mm -hmm. Act. So, so, you know, Bob, the challenge I think that the Republicans have, and I have watched over this election cycle, is they don't have a record to stand on. And so many of our candidates and our incumbents are talking about what needs to be done and what they are going to continue to do and what we have done as Democrats in, in really to address the health care crisis in this country. Health care was key in 2018, key once again. Senator, what about Georgia? Is there any chance a Democratic candidate down there could get above 50 percent on Election Day? Well, look, at this is another one of those states where uh, a year and a half ago, we would, wouldn't even be thinking about what Kansas and Georgia and some of these races. But Georgia, the population and is becoming more diverse. It's growing. It's changing. And you just really have to see what happened, Bob, in the primaries. In that primary uh, in, in Georgia, so many people came out. There's a lot of energy out there and more Democrats came out. So, yes, there is. Uh, an opportunity for two seats for us to, as Democrats, to win those two seats with great candidates. John Ossoff, if you've watched his last debate, it really was an indictment on what I've been saying about what the Republicans have not been doing to address the health care crisis in this country. Uh, and then we have Reverend Warnock, who, my goodness, who, who has been fighting for the issues in that state for so long. Uh, from ex to expanding health care, to voting rights issues, to the dignity of work. Uh, and his message is resonating with so many across the country and in that state as well. You, let me just say this. Let me, let me quick, though, Senator, are you prepared for what could be a brutal runoff campaign in Georgia for both races? I spoke to Senator Todd Young, your counterpart on the Republican side, yesterday, and he brought up unprovoked, uh, I didn't bring up, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. He brought up Reverend Jeremiah Wright in reference to Reverend Warnock and comments Reverend Warnock made in 2008 during that presidential season. Uh, to have the NRSC chair talking about Reverend Jeremiah Wright ahead of a possible runoff, it gives you, in your position, at least a sense of what's to come in a Georgia runoff uh, in the coming months. Well, it goes back to what I said and I've watched over this election cycle, Bob. We have been able to fight and talk about what we are going to do to help people through this crisis, to lead through this health pandemic crisis, to make sure they have access to health care. Republicans don't have anything to stand on because they've been trying to take it away, repeal it. They don't have really a plan to replace it. And so because they don't have a record, they have been having uh, false attacks and smears against all of our candidates. So that's not going to change because that's the only thing that they have right now. I will say in Georgia for the runoff, we, we are strong going into this election and just as strong going into a runoff if that should occur in January. So no, I don't have concerns. And it goes back to what I've just said, uh, is the energy is there. We see that happening in Georgia right now. And it's not just Georgia across the country. Do not discount the energy of all the people that are coming out now. Now I ran in 2016, uh, I ran with this president, the energy that I see now did not exist in 2016. People are paying attention. And it started with that Women's March the day after 
President Trump was inaugurated to every organic protest after that. People are engaged. They know this is the election cycle that matters. And I truly believe that's why we see so much turnout across this country uh, of people are paying attention. So with that said, however, we're not going to take anything for granted. And we are really going to be there with our colleagues and our candidates who are up and running. Uh, we're going to be talking to our voters uh, and we're going to be making sure they know who is going to be fighting for them, uh, whether it's in Washington or up and down the ballot uh, this election cycle. Speaking of uh, the phrase taking for granted, my sources in Washington, the Democrats, they say one race they thought they slept on a little bit in the Senate races uh, in this on the Senate map is Michigan and Senator Gary Peters. He, he seems to be having a bit of a tough time against Republican John James. How do you see that race playing out tonight? And do you believe the DSCC did enough and Senator Peters did enough in Michigan? Well, we always knew Michigan was going to be competitive. I will say this. Uh, really, um, we have a, a strong candidate there um, in um, uh, our incredible uh, Gary Peters. And so let me just say this, uh, with his polling, uh, literally has been strong uh, in his polling that we have seen, at least the credible polls that have come out. He is used to a strong campaign uh, and uh, competitive races in the past. He's done an incredible job raising the money that he needs through the grassroots throughout Michigan and across this country. But most importantly, what I have watched is he's strong on the issues that matter to Michiganders, from the Great Lakes to healthcare, to the healthcare expansion, to all of the issues that were important right now. And I've watched him in the Senate. So no, I don't have concerns there. We knew it was going to be competitive, but he is in a strong position going into this election day. What about Maine? We talked about that earlier. Senator Collins, her handling of the Justice Barrett confirmation process, how has that changed the race in the final few weeks? Well, let, let me say a couple of things with that Supreme Court um, nomination. It really shouldn't be about who puts it in a position for the for a political party, what's best for the political party. It should be about what's best for this country. That's number one. Uh, and I will say in Nevada and across the country, what we have seen, so many Americans wanted the opportunity to allow this election to go forward because we were in the middle of an election uh, and allow the, the next president to make that decision. And that's what should have occurred uh, in this race. Sarah Gideon, former Speaker of the House, she has already was in a strong position even before uh, we got into this nomination process, and that's because uh, she has been there fighting uh, for the folks of Maine and focused on the issues that matter to them. She is a problem solver. She works across the aisle. She's shown that as the Speaker of the House, and we've seen um, her strong showing in uh, polling along with the fact that she's got a good team around her, and she's been taking the time to get out to talk to folks in Maine. It's a little bit out of left field, but I've spent some time reporting in Mississippi over the years, and Democrat Mike Espy seems to be running a pretty strong race down there. If the Democrats do better than expected in the South tonight, are you going to wish you put more money into Mississippi? Well, let me just say this. Not only Mississippi, we've got South Carolina. We've got Kansas on the map. Now, think about this. These are all states that Trump won, right? Double digits. And now they are potentially and are on the map for us now. And I think that has to lot, a lot to do with the strength of our candidates, the message, uh, and they're taking the time to get out and talk to the voters 
uh, the messaging, which is key because it is it matters what the voters uh, care about uh, across this country. And it goes back to what Bob, just what I've been saying. Uh, at the end of the day, it is healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Uh, and right, what about Mississippi and SB? Same thing. I think he's he's a good candidate. He's strong. He's out there talking to uh, folks in his state about the issues that matter. And that's why he's made that competitive. And that's why I'm saying we have expanded the map because of the strength of our candidates who are out there. Uh, they're strong. They are talking about the issues and they're taking the time to show up uh, and talk about what is what is happening and what they're going to fight for. And quite honestly, what we have seen in a lot of these states uh, the Republican senators have fought to 70 times to repeal, repeal the Affordable Care Act. They're in federal court right now trying to take it away. They do not have a plan for this pandemic. They're not even holding the president accountable for his lack of a plan for this pandemic. So it goes on and on and on. They don't have anything to stand on, whereas our candidates are out there and just really focused on how can I help you and what can I do on your behalf in Washington? So a lot of these candidates have been disciplined, but final question here, Senator. In South Carolina, I just spoke to uh, Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip. He said uh, Jamie Harrison's chances are pretty good, but he's worried about voter suppression. What's your gut based on evidence, based on your own conversations with South Carolina political leaders? Is Jamie Harrison going to win or lose tonight? Well, Jamie Harrison, and this is another example of these strong candidates, is in a position and made it competitive because he has been out there talking to voters with a message of hope and talking about what he can do for them, not what he's gonna take away from them. And so that resonates with those voters. And he has been doing that for a year and a half, been watching Jamie. And you just have to watch, look at the, not only the grassroots and the money that he's raised there, but across the country, which has helped him get his message out. I will say this, yes, are we concerned about voter suppression across the country? Absolutely, I see it in Nevada. Republicans are doing everything they can uh, to suppress voters from turning out. In Nevada, in South Carolina, in North Carolina, in Texas, we see it across the country. So you gotta question, why is there an actual political party out there making it harder for voters to be able to come out and have their votes heard? The only reason they're doing that is they're concerned that if all the voters' votes are counted, they will lose. And that to me is not what this country is about. And I think many voters are frustrated and mad and upset that there is a party and even this president trying to undermine our election process and suppressing the vote. I have spent, and as part of the DSCC, our entire team here, we have ramped up our voter protection unit. Uh, we are working with the DNC and the DCCC along with the uh, presidential campaigns and, and so many of our party uh, uh, affiliates and supporters out there to really address voter suppression, voter intimidation uh, across the country, to ensure that our voters can come out uh, and vote and then make sure that their votes count. Senator Cortez Masto, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll now turn to former presidential candidate, Democratic Senator from Minnesota, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Senator Klobuchar, great to see you. Well, thanks so much, Bob. I love that product placement with the pillow with the Washington Post behind you. Thank That's you. very impressive. Yes, we do our best here. You know, it's yes. uh, it's a limited budget, but we can we can have a pillow. Sure, uh, that's good. It, I I can't see your background perfectly. Is your book there? I hope. Uh, 
I, yeah, I don't know. I, taken, I, put, I displayed Pete's book once on Rachel Maddow to help him out. I had it like nicely displayed. So from time to time, I do that. Anyway, we're Your feeling good. Senator next about, door, right? It's a, a great time. day in the Midwest. Have you heard? It is sunny all over the Midwest. What did Beautiful. you make of those images of uh, President Trump in the cold, talking about the cold weather? It reminded me of your presidential announcement. Yes. So one of the things about the cold is you do not complain about the cold when you're in a state that lives through it every single day. And uh, while he was doing that event in Michigan complaining, I was in Green Bay in 30 mile per hour winds with Tammy Baldwin before the Packers Vikings game. Uh, and uh, it was snowing as well. So we did not complain. We rejoiced in the cold and the Vikings went on to win, but that is a whole nother story. Uh, and we were there in Wisconsin because you know, all eyes were on Wisconsin um, this whole year, given what happened in 2016. And Biden is leading there in some polls, double digits, and it feels really good on the ground. Of course, on the other hand, you've got this spike in the coronavirus. People are hurting, very, very difficult. But I think it hits home how personal election this is to every single person, no matter what Trump says about this is going away. Everyone knows someone who's died. Everyone knows someone who's gotten really sick. Everyone knows someone who's lost their job. So all of those personal experience Trump, whatever Trump says, and that is in part what is driving them to the polls. They want a competent president who is a compassion for what they're living through. But what about your state, Minnesota? It's gotten a lot of attention in recent weeks. It is a state uh, that has elected Jesse Ventura governor at one point. Is it actually competitive this time around? Uh, I think that Joe Biden is going to win big. He's ahead in every single poll that's ever been run. Um, Tina Smith, my colleague, uh, her Senate seat is up. She's doing well. Uh, we have a number of House seats that we're going to hold in the suburbs big time. And also, I predict good results in the rural areas, particularly Colin Peterson's seat, and then one we can take on the border of Iowa, the first district. I'm not just talking here. Uh, it's what I think is going to happen. And that is just, again, when Trump did his last rally in Minnesota, and he has vowed that he's never coming to our state again if he loses. So we view that as kind of game on. Uh, but when he came to Rochester, the home of the Mayo Clinic, uh, this mecca of medical treatment, and he came there after saying and blaming doctors and nurses for inflating the virus numbers and getting paid for each coronavirus patient that dies, I would not want to go into Rochester having just done that. And he did, and that didn't go well. So I think you've seen him come to our state so many times, uh, but if anything, I believe it's helped Joe Biden just because of the anger and the divisiveness he brings. It's just not how we run our politics in Minnesota, even though we are a purple state, one of our houses of the legislature right now is Republican, the state Senate with a good chance of taking it back. Um, and we have a number of Republican elected officials on the uh, congressional level, but we are feeling really, really good about Minnesota right now. Well, what about the president's, quote, law and order appeals? Your state is at the center of the nation's racial reckoning. Uh, the president uh, routinely uh, rhetorically attacks Representative Ilhan Omar. How is that playing out in, the, in Minneapolis and its suburbs? Uh, not well at all. Um, one of the big change moments for us in Minnesota after the murder of George Floyd um, and, the, of course, the ongoing prosecution 
of the uh, former police officers that killed him um, was that we had a lot of destruction in our cities and um, it was a really, really hard time for so many reasons. And I was thankful that Joe Biden condemned that destruction, but at the same time was a strong voice for police reform. All of that is going on, and then all of a sudden Donald Trump decides to take it on as a theme in midsummer and say, hey, you're not going to be safe under Joe Biden. Uh, you'll be safer with Donald Trump. And I can tell you right now, that was a really a boomerang problem for him because a lot of, especially our suburban voters, said, wait a minute, this is under Donald Trump's watch, and he has just been uh, putting fuel on the flames here with everything he says, whether it's waving the Bible as a prop in front of the church um, after clearing out peaceful protesters, whether it's the uh, racist rhetoric. And uh, they're not dumb, okay? They figured it out, that they actually are not safer under Donald Trump's watch. Then you add to that the fires raging in the western part of our country at the time, the hurricanes, no, they're not safer if you don't do anything about climate change. The flooding in the Midwest, and then obviously Exhibit A, the pandemic, uh, where people are seeing spikes all over the country now. They are not safer. This has happened under Donald Trump's watch. So I'm not surprised that he abandoned that theme and then went to his newest take, which to me is just an unbelievable thing, which is to undermine our democracy and to say, hey, uh, this isn't uh, right. You can't count the ballots after the election, which I guess I mean the military ballots he must be against. He must be against the 20 some states, including red states uh, that count ballots, continue to count ballots after the election. But all of that is his newest approach, which I think when you see what's happening in Texas, North Carolina, which by the way, Bob, if I gave you one state to watch tonight, it's North Carolina and Georgia. Again, backlash. Why North Boomer Carolina? Why North Carolina? Because Cal Cunningham's had a tough time there against Senator Tillis. Yeah, okay, but listen, 95% of the 2016 votes already cast two days before election day. 95% of the total votes cast. That means they are going to blow up the numbers from 2016. A huge voter turnout, a state that prides itself um, with their Democratic governor, who's incredibly popular, a state that prides itself in the work that they're doing in education and startups and the like, that have seen their progress slowed down by this pandemic and all the angry rhetoric. And North Carolina has already, already counted 4.7 million ballots, Bob. Now, we don't need North Carolina to win. I predict we can easily win through the Midwest with Pennsylvania. But I know everyone's talking about Florida, and it would be so great to win Florida. But North Carolina is going to get their results in so soon because they've already counted 4.7 million ballots, and then they'll just be adding in the ones from today. Um, so we're going to get it in sense. Hmm? You've Go spent ahead, a Bob. lot of time in, in the past uh, year in Iowa during your presidential campaign. You were just in uh, Wisconsin with Senator Baldwin. I was just talking with Senator Cortez Masto about the Des Moines Register poll showing uh, Senator Ernst now climbing back into the race in Iowa. Are you worried about the Midwest, about uh, suburban women in the Midwest and suburban men uh, turning perhaps away from Vice President Biden at the last minute? What's your sense of what's happening in your region? Uh, not one bit. I just I, I began my day today with a call from Sherrod Brown, um, which is always great hearing his voice first thing in the morning. 
Um, and they are tied there in Ohio. And Biden has a very good chance, a state that we didn't think we had a chance in. Biden's significantly ahead of those three states that we need, right, in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, and Minnesota. And then you look at Pennsylvania, where I don't think there's a poll that showed him behind. Iowa has always been a redder state. Uh, but that Des Moines Register poll is not the only poll out there. Just the next day, an Emerson poll showed uh, Teresa Greenfield three points up in that U.S. Senate race. Uh, so I think that's going to be a close one, and I think Teresa could easily pull it off. And look at the fact, Bob, three of four of their congressional members right now are Democrats, three of four in Iowa. So don't rule out Iowa in any way when you look at that. Second question you had, suburban women. One of my favorite moments of this campaign uh, was after this horrendous debate uh, where Donald Trump interrupts Chris Wallace in the first debate by over 100 times. He then a few days later is on a rally stage and says, why don't suburban women like me? <laughs> Seriously. Perhaps it's because they don't like how he acted in the debate. Perhaps they're tired of the rudeness and having to turn the volume down on the morning TV when their kids are eating breakfast because they don't want to have their kids hear what the president says. Perhaps they're tired of teaching their first grader how to use the mute button just to learn to read or balancing their toddlers on their knees and their laptops on their desk while they're trying to do their work. Maybe they want to see their parents at Thanksgiving and give them a big hug, but they can't because they have to keep them safe. So how do I think the suburbs are going? Incredibly strong. And if I'm wrong about that, you can have me on next week and I guess I'll eat my words. How are you going to handle it as a U.S. senator if the numbers show President Trump behind, likely to lose, but he refuses to accept the result? Well, this is an interesting person you are asking because I'm actually the ranking member of the Rules Committee in the Senate, and I will be chairing it um, if uh, we take over the Senate. And Roy Blunt and I are running the uh, inauguration. Um, so I believe our democracy has checks and balances and set rules for a reason. There are dates, uh, there are times, there's the electoral college that is to report. And I was actually comforted by a number of Republican leaders when the president had been making those statements across the country, came out immediately and said uh, that they believe in the peaceful transition of power. I don't know how much clearer they could be. I also uh, believe that that when you have key Republican lawyers like Ben Ginsburg, as he just did in your newspaper, uh, writing a piece about how the Republican Party has to reexamine itself and get away from these false claims of election fraud, uh, that you have so many voices out there from John Kasich to Cindy McCain to Colin Powell who are going to stand up to this. But ultimately, Bob, my view is if Biden wins big and can pick up some of these states that no one ever thought possible, in addition to the ones he needs to get to to get to the Electoral College, I think this discussion becomes moot. So the usual question for you, senators, would you join a Biden cabinet? But here's a, I want to phrase it a different way. Is it is that the answer to that question going to depend on whether Democrats hold the majority in the Senate? As you just said, if they have the majority. You have a lot on your plate, but if they don't, maybe the cabinet is something that seems a little bit uh, like a good option. I love my job, Bob. I always have said this. I said it through the presidential campaign. I'm in leadership in the Senate. I'm set to chair the Rules Committee if we win the Senate. 
I'm chair of the antitrust subcommittee, which might sound nerdy, but it's going to be a huge, huge uh, part of the work we need to do uh, in the coming year if we want to make sure that small businesses can start up again and we can have actual competition in this country. Um, so I, I love what I'm doing, and I have uh, not even uh, talked to them about this because I think they know I like what I'm doing. So that's where I am right now. You like what you're doing, but if the president-elect ever did call you, you'd, you'd listen. Of course, I would listen to everyone. I would listen to anyone. I'm very good at taking calls and getting back to people, especially from the president-elect. But the bottom line is that I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the Senate. I think you are hearing some of this uh, from uh, the uh, Biden camp as they look at um, all the important work that needs to be done. And I just really hope that we win today uh, in the U.S. Senate. And I know it's close. I know there's a lot of races that are close. You talked to my friend Catherine about so many of them, so I won't dwell on it. Um, but we need to move on these issues beyond getting through the pandemic. Biden has to put a team in place immediately um, to deal with that, as well as so many other things. We've got to do something on climate change. We just can't bury our heads in the sand for four more years. Immigration reform uh, would be something where there's been bipartisan support in the past, but we were just gut punched by the administration. There are Republican senators that want to move on immigration reform. Doing something on workforce training and um, the pharmaceutical crisis. These are all things that we debated on that debate stage uh, during the presidential campaign. And there's room where a lot of Republicans want to move on this too, but not if we don't take over the Senate and we're just stuck in this gridlock of fighting all the time. So uh, that's really what I'm going to be focused on in addition to what I told you, North Carolina. Right. Well, everything you just, this is the final question, Senator. Everything you just detailed is more of a 2021 possibility. But President Trump, should he be defeated, will still be president until January 2021. Yes. That could be a long, lame duck. What's your plan yeah. of action? Should he make many personnel changes, to say the least, inside the executive branch and, and make other moves that we can't even predict at this moment? Well, we'll have to use whatever powers we have to make sure that we keep a government in place that can actually govern during that time. But there's one big thing that we should be doing and I think is possible, and that is um, a pandemic relief package. Uh, we see these small businesses 800 a day, according to a Yelp survey that are closing. The head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has said it would be tragic if we didn't get anything done. And you've got Mnuchin um, in good faith uh, negotiating with Nancy Pelosi. And my hope is because we are going back there literally next Monday, the Senate is, the House has passed a package that was a compromise. It included the help for restaurants and stages and some of the other help we need for very hard hit uh, employees and businesses. Uh, so that's what I would really like us to do um, in the lame duck. That is the main thing in addition to the budget. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, really appreciate you stopping by this afternoon okay. to the Washington Post Live Election Daily. Thank you. Very good, Bob. Look forward to seeing you on the other side of this. We could have some hot dish. Uh, okay, hot dish, hot cocoa, whatever you want, but mostly. Isn't that, that's the Minnesota thing, right? I, I got it right. It's yeah, the, no, it's with the tater tots and all contest. that. Al Franken started that we've continued the tradition on a bipartisan basis. We all submit hot dishes and I won at the beginning and I've never won since. And so it's kind of, I'm so glad you brought it up. No, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> Thank see you, you later. You will.
Okay. We're now going to be joined by two of my colleagues at the Washington Post, two terrific reporters to really give us a sense of what's happening here on Election Day, Andy Linsky and Ann Guerin. Uh, they're joining us right now. Andy and Ann, great to be here with you. Thank you for uh, joining on, on this busy afternoon. Hi there. Uh, Andy Linsky, we'll start with you. You've been covering uh, the Biden campaign, Democrats. What's in your sourcing world at the senior levels of the party, what's their big concern at this moment? 2.03 p.m. Eastern, we've seen the spin, they're on TV, we've heard some of them here on Post Live, the public, the public message from the Democrats. What's the private message and perhaps the private anxiety? <laughs> I mean, I think the big concern that I've been hearing when I've been, you know, talking to my sources in the Biden campaign is just, you know, what do they not, what do they not know? Um, you know, what they've been going into today feeling very confident um, because of their analytics and because of their numbers and because from what they're seeing, they are hitting the numbers and they are where they need to be with voters in key groups. But, you know, we all remember that same confidence based on a sort of faulty model in 2016. So I think, you know, the the you know, where there's a sense of anxiety, it comes from the sort of PTSD of 2016 and the the knowledge that, you know, the best modeling can be wrong. Um, and even though they feel good, there's always the possibility that they have massively undercounted, um, you know, non-college educated white voters. In a, in a sort of extraordinary way that could, you know, open a path to Trump that they are, they believe right now is quite narrow. Um, but, you know, that path becomes wider if their modeling is just off. And what are you hearing from the Trump side? Well, Bob, the, the Trump side is sounding, you know, just as confident, at least officially. Uh, Trump just did a visit uh, a little short while ago to Republican headquarters just outside Washington, gave a mostly upbeat speech, but I was struck by the fact that when he was asked about whether or not he's preparing a concession speech in addition to an acceptance speech, a victory speech, uh, for whenever that moment comes, uh, he sounded slightly downbeat. He he said he's really only trying to think about the uh, acceptance speech and that winning is easy, but losing is hard. Um, that losing is just a word that he doesn't say about himself. Uh, so clearly it is on his mind that it's a possibility. Uh, as Annie said, his path uh, to victory is is narrower from what we do know uh, on, on paper than, than is Vice President Biden's. But it is a path nonetheless. Uh, and he definitely is going into today with the possibility of being able to pull it out just like he did in 2016. And let me follow up with you uh, for a moment. In 2016, you covered Secretary Clinton's campaign day in, day out. Four years later, on election day, what's different for Democrats uh, from your vantage? Well, I, I think one thing is something that Annie put her finger on a moment ago, which is the ghost of 2016, right? There, it, it's in everyone's head that there may be uh, a lot that they are not thinking about or seeing or a lot that they're not doing right. Uh, they think they've corrected for all the mistakes that they knew they had, uh, but they're worried that there is a, a, another, some mistake out there that, that they haven't gotten to. And then of course you have the, the pandemic is the, the biggest uh, difference between this year and, and, and four years ago. Everything about campaigning is different. Everything about voting is different. 
uh, and it, for, for most people, the, the pandemic has changed the way they participated in politics this year. That's certainly true for the campaigns, uh, it's and, it's, and it's absolutely true for voters and, and for reporters. I mean, four years ago, I was getting on a bus about this time of the day, going uh, down to the Javits Center to wait for Hillary's victory speech that night. We had a very, very long night there and no victory speech. We all remember that moment. Uh, Annie Linsky, you've covered Senator Warren and uh, as well as, of course, Vice President Biden and, and that campaign. When you talk to the Warren world today, do they feel like that voter, the Warren voter, the Bernie Sanders voter is coming out at the level that voter needs to come out for Biden to win? Uh, they do. I mean, um, Senator Warren um, and uh, Senator Sanders have both done quite a lot, in, you know, over the past few months to get their voters out. They've also um, really resisted any criticism at all of, um, of Biden and his team. They they played ball and participated in over the summer in these unity task forces coming up with policies. Um, Senator Warren, in particular, has been become quite close. Um, with um, Vice President, former Vice President Biden, um, they talk frequently. So I think that um, Biden has done a very good job at sort of keeping the peace and keeping um, Senator Warren, in particular, quite close to him. Um, so, so there is a sense that um, there, there hasn't been the kind of sniping that we saw before. But you know, it, it still remains to be seen. I mean, these are just two. Um, to party leaders, but their followers are not always going to do exactly what they're going to, you know, whatever, you know, they're not always going to follow in lockstep. Um, but the feel is quite different this year. Um, you know, there have been moments that have come up where Biden has said things that in the past would have driven the liberal wing of the party bonkers, and they have really um, sort of papered over those sort of disagreements. Um, one was a... Um, something I reported in the Washington Post about Biden's team kind of privately distancing themselves from some economic plans that had been hammered out with the Sanders wing of the party. Um, the Sanders wing of the party really believed those were sort of ironclad promises and the Biden campaign publicly backed away from them. You know, you'd normally expect that to create quite a, an eruption of criticism, but um, aside from some sort of smaller, you know, um, moments on Twitter, the you know the sort of principles tried to keep things very sort of under the radar. Now, if you know, I, I'm not sure how long that peace can be held. I know there's a lot of pent up frustration, but for now, it certainly seems to be holding. And while you are a Trump White House reporter at the moment, you've also reported on the Obama White House, the national security apparatus in that administration. When you look forward to a possible Biden-Harris administration, are we looking for some of these older Obama hands to come back and to key positions at state, uh, at the Defense Department? What are you hearing? You're close to that world as a reporter. Yeah. Well, Bob, I mean, there will be a few who come back, uh, in, including some uh, who worked for uh, Vice President Biden before, as well as uh, Secretary Clinton at the State Department or in, in, in her uh, presidential run four years ago, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, a name that not everybody knows, but he certainly was a, a mainstay at the Obama White House, worked for, for, for Biden before, worked for Clinton uh, at the State Department, worked for the campaign, and is now working for, for, for the Biden campaign. 
is expected to, to get a pretty uh, senior job. Uh, some of the other uh, Obama administration officials who appear likely to return include Michelle Flournoy, uh, who's been frequently mentioned as the most likely person to become Secretary of Defense, and historically the first female Secretary of Defense we've, we have had. Uh, it's not entirely clear that she will be the pick, but she's certainly the name that, that, that people mention uh, most often. And then, you know, to your point from when you were talking to uh, Senator Klobuchar a few minutes ago, it does appear likely that that at least some uh, elected Democrats might come into the administration as well. Um, that absolutely will will depend in part on on the makeup of, of the Senate, uh, at, in, as your question to her uh, made clear. But, you know, there's a most of those folks uh, are people who Biden has known either in, in one part of his life or another, either as Senate colleagues or people he worked with uh, in, in Congress when he was vice president. Uh, I do expect that we will see a certain uh, seasoned cadre uh, uh, of, of somewhat mm -hmm. familiar faces coming back in. What about Senator Warren, Annie? Does she join the cabinet at Treasury or is that a more of a campaign than a reality? I mean, at this point, um, you know, it, it does seem more of a campaign than a reality. Uh, there are, are a number of people I've talked to who say that it it doesn't seem um, all, all that likely that she would be the, the selection. I think some of this will have to do on the Senate, you know, what the Senate um, looks like um, after the election. I mean, as you know, um, She's a little tricky to pick. Um, her, she just uh, on the sort of face of it, she's from Massachusetts, a place that is governed by a Republican. And um, so, if, if she were to to join the Biden administration, she would be um, likely replaced by a Republican and and, and close the gap that. Um, uh, that Biden's hoping to have in terms of a majority. I mean, her people will say that law can be changed. The Massachusetts, Massachusetts legislature has changed it in the past, um, but you haven't seen any kind of movement to change it. Um, and it is, it, it's, it is a tricky thing to do. So um, I, I think that she's going to have um, a role in in the administration, in, she, her closeness with Biden is quite significant, right? Like they really genuinely have been close. People both who are close to both Biden and to Warren's worlds say that. It's just sort of what exactly the role will be, whether it's kind of a, a sort of a, a, a person who Biden will consult and listen to in terms of the left and in terms of appoint, appointments or somebody who's actually in the administration. Um, it probably, uh, you know, you, you, it seems more likely that she'd be in the Senate. So real quick, lightning round here, uh, and Garen first. It's election day, election night, just a few hours away. What are you working on? Uh, I'm actually working on a story uh, that won't uh, appear until tomorrow morning. So that is, uh, <laughs> I have I have a little bit of a grace period. Um, I'm going to be writing the uh, Where Are We story starting at 5 a.m. tomorrow. So I'm, uh, I'm getting my ducks in a row for that. And Annie Linsky, what are you working on? Um, I'm doing two pieces right now. I'm, I'm pulling together the sort of background for the um, main bar for tomorrow. Um, which perhaps will have results in it, or perhaps will be a too close to call story. Um, and, and then also we're doing a story that's sort of looking at the, um, the importance of women voters and the importance of women in this election. Annie Linsky, national political reporter covering the presidential campaign, and Garen, White House reporter 
doing the same. Really appreciate both of your time uh, on this busy afternoon and good luck with those stories. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.